0: This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan, and this week, we've been talking about what we believe and why we believe things that are, well, not true. At the end of our conversation, Shankar Vedanta made this point.
1: The very same self deceptions that can cause people to bind together, to hold together, to stand by one another, to be selfless and altruistic and generous toward one another, the very same capacities we have for self deception that allow us to do those good things also allow us to form tribes and echo chambers and detest and hate one another. And so I think the role of political leadership is incredibly important here, because this is where skilled leadership says, here are the stories that we want to bring to the fore. Here are the stories that will bring out the best of ourselves.
0: As Vedantam describes in greater detail in his book, Useful Delusions, what we believe is very much shaped by the leaders we trust. That point was underscored earlier this week when the self-described nonpartisan watchdog organization, the Democracy Funds Voter Study Group, released Crisis in Confidence. The report co-authors Robert Griffin and Maisha Kasem analyzed the national poll of 4,400 adults since the 2020 elections. And among the many findings, 60% of Americans believe the election did permanent harm to the nation. And among Trump voters, just 34% said they would accept Biden as a legitimate president. Is this surprising or normal? To learn more, I invited report co-author and political scientist Robert Griffin to shed some light. Robert, welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And Robert, before we get started, tell uh, our listeners where you are in the world, what organization you represent, and what you do for them.
1: Sure. So I am the research director for the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group. And uh, the short version about us uh, is that we're a group of scholars, analysts, pollsters uh, who are trying to better understand the American electorate. So we do public opinion survey work. uh, We try to engage, I think, with some of the biggest narratives uh, about what's going on with the American public and try to shed light on those things so that people just have a sort of a shared reality to work from.
0: Can I ask you to talk a little bit about that survey research, and what were some of the key findings?
1: One of the things that we saw that's completely normal is that there are people who supported a losing candidate and people who supported a winning candidate, and we see their opinions diverge after the election about whether or not that election was conducted fairly and accurately. So the idea that people are uh, uh, sort of sour grapes, right, to, to put it one way, um, after election, is not really that strange. The oddity of what we are going through now is, uh, I think, twofold. One is the intensity with which those opinions are held, right? So that we're seeing much higher levels post-election than we did in prior elections. I think the second piece of it that's really important here, and it goes beyond public opinion, but that whatever these negative attitudes that the public has, they are being reinforced, if not actively stoked, Uh, by political elites. In this case, uh, the former uh, president of the United States, Donald Trump, significant portions of the Republican Party, as well as members of the conservative media. It's not just that these attitudes existed. It's that now they're being supported at this high level. Because typically what happens is people have these negative emotions post-election, and what do you have? You have a concession speech. You have a process uh, in which the loser of that election, the party and the the candidate themselves, make the motions uh, that they they sort of behave in conciliatory ways, both in terms of their their actions as well as sort of their words, and that helps close the wounds after an election, right? Because because every one of these elections creates uh, animosity to a certain degree. People don't like losing, um, but but really, again, what's what's happening here that's different is not. Some radical change necessarily in the public, but it, it's, it's a difference of leadership.
0: When you talk about the concession speech as a signaling to your supporters that we can accept the authenticity of the election and move forward, you're, it's also reinforcing in an implicit way the system. That's what I hear you saying. It's, it's, it reinforces that the system, the, de- the democratic processes itself work. That didn't happen this year.
1: No, no, it didn't. You know, it helps people to narrativize their own lives and the events that are happening around them. To have a a sitting president at that point, obviously now a former president, so actively violate those things, and not just sort of in the immediate aftermath of the election, but now eight months out, continuing to spread lies about this election, we don't have a lot of precedent for people doing this. And so we're, we're in a little bit in uncharted territory here, but at least so far, what we're seeing is eight months out. A lot of the polling numbers that you would ask people, do you think, you know, for example, is Joe Biden a legitimate president? We're still seeing really high numbers of Republicans say no, right? That that he only won because of fraud, that he's, in fact, an illegitimate president. Um, And that's kind of a really worrying sign, I think, again, for American democracy. The thing that I worry about in some ways myself, too, is I, I think a lot of people have in their heads that January 6th was... Uh, the zenith. You know, I I hope it's the zenith. I hope that's as bad as it ever gets. But there's obviously room for it to get a lot worse, to be frank about it.
0: When you talk about January 6th as a quote unquote zenith for one group, which group are you talking about? Are you talking about those who uh, see the threat to democracy or those who saw the threat to the elections? What does January 6th represent to the two different groups that, that you have looked at?
1: I think on the one end of things, you have people who would be very concerned about the events of January 6th. And That actually includes a, a pretty good chunk of American society, both Democrats and Republicans, right? Okay, well, is that the worst as it gets, right? Do we have examples uh, in other countries? Do we have examples of democratic decline elsewhere? What do those look like? Is January 6th as bad as it gets once we start referencing those data points? And, and the reality there is that January 6th is not as bad as it could get, as bad as it was. January 6th might well be sort of like the kickoff point for an era of instability or an era where now elections are going to be contested. That's not Britain in stone, right? But I think, you know, having a, having a democracy that's a bit more stable, where people have more trust in the system, it's an act of will. It's something that all of us sort of have to build together.
0: At the beginning of your report, you say free and fair elections are the lifeblood of democracy. What are the signs for you that we are in need of a transfusion? And what are the signs that we are in cardiac arrest?
1: Some of them are already happening. You've got political parties that instead of trying to win elections or trying to change the rules, that's typically a bad sign. It's already happening. I guess if it was happening at an even higher level uh, or more in more blatant ways, that would be bad. It would be a bad sign to me if the Democratic Party, frankly, were to pick up any of this fever itself, and this is to say if we were to have a future election that was legitimately lost by Democrats, and they also sort of spiraled into a period of conspiracizing about this issue, that would be a very, very bad sign because then we would have two parties who are both engaged uh, in this type of behavior at a high level. So that would, that would be a real big danger sign. Um, continued violence um, at, at significant levels that are, you know, political in nature, this would be a pretty big warning sign to me. Another piece of the puzzle here is how much influence does Donald Trump continue to have on the Republican Party? The reality is that he's sort of patient zero in some ways for a lot of these conspiracies around the election. Um, So to the degree that the Republican Party is not able to shake him off over the course of the next couple of years, um, it's a really bad sign for one of the two major political parties. Mm.
0: As we speak, there are a number of bills being proposed in state legislatures that advocates describe as seeking to suppress voter turnout, especially among minorities and Democrats. What does your study tell us about the motivations behind these bills? Who supports them and why?
1: I think on, on the one end, you probably do have some state legislators around the country Uh, Again, Republican state legislators who are are trying to pass these bills that are um, just talk about it in broad strokes, trying to make it harder to vote and restrict access to the ballot. And um, some of these people are true believers. That is to say, they're hearing from the leader of their party and other portions of conservative media or uh, other portions of the Republican Party that the 2020 was an election where there was a significant amount of fraud and that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. And this all happened because of a bunch of loosey goosey election laws. I think there is another group of folks who want to potentially be responsive to Republican electorates in their state that they see picking up these beliefs at a really high rate. And they do that for all sorts of reasons, sometimes actually be responsive. Maybe they're ambitious for, um, you know, a higher office or something like that. They want to get in good with their constituencies. And I think there's yet a third thing, which is there is a relatively well ingrained belief within the Republican Party that access to the ballot and higher turnout rates inherently favor Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party. Now, the the evidence on that is actually pretty sparse. You know, we just had the highest turnout election in about 100 years, and 40,000 votes flipped the other way would have resulted in uh, a, a win for Donald Trump, right? That's how it would have played out in the Electoral College. So it's not inherently obvious to me. You
0: know, when you describe the the, the demographics and you describe the alignment with the conservative Republican movement. When you say that, you're talking about the challenge of creating kind of a, a space for conversation to be able to interrogate some of the beliefs, interrogate some of the ideas in a way that's constructive. Am I, am I reading or hearing you correctly or am I missing something?
1: No, I think you're right. Every political party is a big tent, right? We talk about big tents and small tents, but the reality is just about every party is a big tent. So at the very least, what you might hope to see there, that there is some emergent coalition that within the Republican party itself that might stand opposed uh, to the big lie, right? To the extent that we might hope um, there was some emergent coalition that might push back on this in a sustained manner. It's not 100% clear that it exists.
0: You talked about the elites, the political elites. What about other elites like religious leaders?
1: I use the term elites pretty broadly. Um, You know, when I talk about that, I really mean people uh, who are, are thought of as being knowledgeable, as sources of information that people can rely on and that they have a pretty big megaphone to speak from. Um, So, you know, when I think about people who are capable of being influential on the attitudes that people have, how they narrativize their own lives, both personally and politically, um, religious elites certainly would fall into that category, along with, again, political elites, obviously, Um, sitting presidents are a pretty big influence on uh, people's attitudes, uh, as well as media elites, right? Folks who, you know, you hear from on a potentially a a daily basis about uh, about the news and sort of you know, getting constant information sources about how to interpret events as they're occurring.
0: What about people who are closer to us? We're talking about elites, but what voices do you feel like are ones that we ought to be tuning or listening into a little bit more? Do you feel that we're listening enough to voices that exert influence closer to people? Or is it most instructive to be tuning into the elites that are sitting perhaps at the top of that pyramid?
1: I usually don't think about it from a utility standpoint. I'll be perfectly honest. But like I, I usually think about it as just sort of an it-is-what-it-is kind of thing. Um, that it, it happens to be the case that the attitudes espoused by the President of the United States have a disproportionate impact on what everybody thinks. Um, and, and that happens for all sorts of reasons. Um, but, you know, as a general statement, if you were to say to me, should people be paying attention uh, to things that are a little bit closer to home? Um I, I think that's probably a net positive at this point in American history. There's a couple of trends that exist in American politics right now. One of them is called uh, nationalization, right? So the old adage is that everything is local in politics, but the reality is that over time we have seen elections becoming more and more correlated, like that is to say, the results of elections becoming more and more correlated with national results, so that our our politics itself has become more nationalized and less. Uh, affected by sort of local or state level uh, events or goings on. So in general, if if you were to say, you know, would it be a positive thing for people to hone in a little bit more on the issues that are a little bit closer to home, and sometimes even paying attention to, you know, the voices in their own community, uh, this would be a good thing. I don't know that I have, I don't, I don't know that I have a lot of faith in that just happening on its own, right? I usually have to say to myself, what's the mechanism? What's the thing that changes this that maybe goes beyond one or two of your listeners? Um, I don't know, potentially taking that advice to heart and, and sort of changing their mind about something. But is, what, is, what is a technological change or a societal change that shifts people en masse towards sort of upweighting those different concerns rather than just what's going on at the national level?
0: Thank you, Robert Griffin, for joining me to talk about the most recent survey work that you've done with the Democracy Fund Group.
1: Thank you for having me. This is a lovely conversation.
0: Robert Griffin is the research director of the Democracy Fund's Voter Study Group. You can find a link to their poll, Crisis of Confidence, in this week's show notes on our website at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices and help us out. Leave a rating and a review. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.